Well, how many of you had a chance to see the coronation of King Charles or portions of it? How many saw that? Well, you were not alone. Apparently, there were millions of people watching that all over the world. And uh, thinking about seeing some news report about it earlier in the week, I decided I wanted to speak to you about kings and people who rule. And I thought I'd, I'd go back to the Old Testament, where most of them are recorded, and share a little bit about Jewish, the Jewish kingdoms. And uh, not to make it boring, some people hate history, right? Are you one of them? You know, they say about history, if we don't want to go back to it, we're doomed to repeat it. So there's a lot we can learn. And I want to believe that this morning there's stuff you can learn about your relationship to the Lord in the life of some of these kings, and in particular one, one who was called the good king. Well, Israel had many, many kings. And this week, our, our vacation Bible school spoke to one particular king, King Solomon. King Solomon, as you might recall, was considered the wisest man that ever lived. And the Bible says, the Old Testament say that he would be the wisest man who would ever live. So that means whoever you're thinking about that's so smart, Solomon, uh, King Solomon was smarter than that person. Sounds like a wonderful thing. He was wealthy, he was smart, he was famous, but he messed up. And he messed up a big time. So he was one of the smartest men in the Bible, and he was also the most disappointing king in the Bible. So let me take you back to one of Israel's more obscure kings, whom, the, whom history has labeled the good king. Before I reveal his name, even though it's up there, and you're probably cheated and already know, uh, with the coronation of Israel's first king, the 12 tribes of Israel were united. That union remained strong 120 years under three kings, each of whom served 40 years apiece. They were Saul, David, and Solomon, and each left his mark on the nation. It's been said that because of his physical strength, Saul made the body rule. He ruled from strength. David, with his music and psalms, David made the heart rule. He was a musician. He was an artist. He was a person who just wanted to exude God's love. And Solomon, with his gift of wisdom, made the mind rule. So every aspect of who a person is was covered. This composite view of their character provides lessons from the believer throughout the ages. When Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was torn into two parts, and that division was due to a number of contributing factors. This is more due to Solomon than anybody else. Let me list these for you. Idolatry was one of the reasons why that nation fell apart. In other words, they held up others rather than God. And eventually, that would lead to their destruction. Are we holding up others rather than God in our nation today? This is a warning. They were disloyal to God. After all God had done for the people of Israel, despite all their history of being led by God to, to a better place, their promised kingdom, they just completely forgot about it. Are we forgetting about God and all his blessings to America? You know, America used to be called a Christian nation. I don't think we can call America a Christian nation anymore, do you? And that's said sadly. Their sin contributed to the downfall. Is sin contributing to the downfall of our country? They, listen to this, you wonder where this comes from. Heavy and prolonged taxation. 
led to their downfall. The people had nothing, and the, and the, and the, uh, the, the people who were the elites of the time, they had everything. They had a lavish lifestyle where people were scraping together just to make subsistence. And Solomon's adultery. Now, Solomon adultery. Solomon's adultery can be marked by the number of wives he had. Anybody remember how many wives he had? 700 wives. I hope he had them in alphabetical order because I, I don't know what to say. Could you possibly remember number 42? Solomon's style of leadership, strong, autocratic, and wise was the only human force holding Israel together. But Solomon's sin, visible to all the people, gave them a kind of permission. After all, if the king can get away with all of this stuff, and he's been appointed and anointed by God, and, he's, and God shines his favor upon him in so many ways, if he could get away with that stuff, why can't I? And as we look around and we see not just political leaders, but leaders in entertainment. As we see their lifestyle, that's giving tacit approval to our young people together today. If they can live like that, why can't I? You see, leadership carries with it much responsibility. People are watching. And in particular, our young people are watching what goes on. And they're getting their cues about how to live by what they see. And you know all the various places they're doing that from. Failure, Solomon's failure in personal living and leadership, God told Solomon something very serious. He said, because of the things that you've done and the negative impact you had upon these people, you are going to suffer serious consequences. And he did. Turn in your Bibles up here on PowerPoint to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. And we'll start out by asking you, I'll start out by asking you to stand for it, and then we'll read this as our text. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11 to 13. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this has, is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant, Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David and my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. So you may be seated. So he was going to take the kingdom away from him. Imagine being dethroned by God himself. You know, the Bible says that God raises up people in power and he takes them down. And he's doing that in Solomon's case. And so with Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two entities, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The two kingdoms were very different. The north with 10 out of the 12 Jewish tribes was more powerful than the south with two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But Judah was more firm in their love for God and in their spiritual life. The king of Israel plagued by revolutions, while Judah faithfully followed the royal line of David. While there were dangerous crises and a bunch of bad kings in Judah, they had a spiritual bond which held them together because they were focused on the Lord. They weren't focused on who was leader and who was king and who was in charge and who were the elites and who, was what, who weren't and what we have and what they've got and wish we had. They weren't into that. They were focused on the Lord. 
Having said that, the person who we're going to focus on this morning is the third king, and his name is Asa, A-S-A. By all accounts, he's been labeled the good king. I'll turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, and you can read it as I go along here. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, and that'll be verses 1 to 6. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, resigned in his stead. He was king now. In his days, the land was quiet ten years. And as Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he took away all the altars of strange gods and the high places and brake down their images and cut down their grooves, groves and commanded Judah to sing the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and commandment. And he also took away out of all the cities of Judah, the high places and the images, and the kingdom was quiet before him. And he built fenced cities in Judah, and the land had rest and had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Where was their focus? Their focus was on the Lord. Where was their attention? Their attention was to the Lord. Where was their allegiance? Their allegiance was to the Lord. And if your allegiance is to the Lord, if he comes first, what does the Bible say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You want peace? You want assurance? You want security? You want a firm sense of your own salvation? Put the Lord first. You want to be happy in your work? You want to be happy in your relationship with your spouse, put the Lord first. Asa was a godly son and a, and a godly fa- of a godless father. His father, testimony, was no stumbling block to his son's faith. How many people are brought up in a family of the father is, and the family is no relationship to the Lord? We have lots of families like that. And for some, they think, well, because my my father is not a Christian, my mother is not a Christian, my family is not a Christian, I am doomed. No way. He wasn't a victim. Asa wasn't a victim of his DNA, his environment, or his past. Verse 1 says uh, uh, that he was good good and right in, uh, in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He did the best he could to follow the Lord. I have six lessons from Asa's life. Number one, your past doesn't have to be your future. Look back over your past. Think about the things that you did in your life that you regret. That doesn't have to be your future. Think about how you were raised. Think about who your parents were. Think about who your friends were. Think about how you messed up and fell flat on your face. I look back on my life and I see those times. And I know the devil would love to make me feel guilty and feel condemned about my past, but guess what? The Bible said that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You don't have to focus on your past if it's an ugly past. You're not to be concerned about your past. Learn from your past, sure, but don't be strangled by your past. Allow the past to teach you the lessons that you had to learn from them and then realize that the rest is up to you and the Lord. And follow him, and he'll carve out a life for you. Asa aimed at pleasing God. He was now the king of what would, uh, and what would he do with this king power and authority? What would be his legacy after 41 years as a king? How would history remember him? Because Asa wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, he had no intention of maintaining the status quo. So when he thought about, what am I going to do? 
I'm a, I'm a believer in, in the living God. What's my next step? I'm king. Well, he knew one thing. He was not going to allow the status quo to continue. He was not going to let things continue as they always were because as they were always, they were not pleasing in God's sight. And he decided all of that had to be shaked up. And I feel this way too. Maybe you'll agree with me with an amen. It's time for us to be shaken up as a country. It's time to shake up all the things that are going on and go back to serving the Lord and being focused on him. As Asa surveyed his kingdom, he diagnosed the soul of his nation that it was sin sick. The people had given themselves over to pagan gods, idol worship, idol worship, sexual depravity. In short, they had walked away from Jehovah God. They had violated his, king, his commandments. The only cure was to cut out the cancer of sin and turn back to God. Asa realizes as the man for his time, he cannot overcome both the internal and external forces arrayed against Judah. Sin was in the house and the enemy was out the, at the door. And when faced with a million man army ready to invade and half that number of untrained guerrilla fighters to defend Judah, Asa does what a godly commander should do. Listen to what he does in chapter, in chapter 14 and verse 11. And Asa cried out to the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. There's a million-man army out there. He's got, doesn't even have half that amount of rabble-rousers in his nation. We rest in thee, and thy name we go against this multitude. We're going to go out in your name. Commander-in-Chief President Abraham Lincoln prayed, Lord, give us the faith that right makes might. Because we want to be on your side, Lord, because we want to do the right thing, help us so that we could do what's right. Lesson number two, God and God alone can help us in our weakness to be strong, your weakness, your moments of weakness. Are you feeling under it today? Are you feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances and the issues of your life right now? God is the answer. He'll provide a way. He's made a promise to us that any temptation that comes your way, God will allow you to get through them. He'll give you whatever it takes to make it. How? Day by day, one day at a time. He'll give you whatever you need to say. You say, well, I'm not so sure, Pastor, because I've got really big stuff happening. I don't know. Is your God too small? Are your problems so big that your God can't handle them? I thought, I read in the Bible that with God, nothing is impossible. Say that with me. Nothing is impossible with God. They may be, your circumstances and your issues and your problems may be too big for you, but they're not too big for your God. Amen? So why are we suffering under these things? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace, Jesus says, is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will take pleasure in difficulties, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am made strong. Paul says, I have to face it. There is a chink in my armor. I have areas where I am vulnerable. 
I want to turn my vulnerability over to the Lord. I want to cry out to him and tell him, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I can't handle this. Lord, help. And I promise, it may take a very long time, but help is on the way. Amen? Have you experienced that? I just want to see your hand. You've seen God's hand at work in your life in circumstances you never thought you'd get through, and boy, did you get through them. It may have taken a while, maybe not in your time, but in God's time, and he knows his timing best. With God's help, the million-man invading army was defeated by the smaller, weaker nation of Judah, but Judah's internal enemy was even a bigger challenge. King Solomon had brought idol worship into Israel. It was now ingrained in the life of the people. They loved their idols, and they loved their pagan gods. We're in the same boat. Think about the things that we idolize. We idolize people in Hollywood who are so envious of their lifestyle. Are you? Have you looked at them people? Have you looked at their lifestyle? I think a lot of times it ends in disaster. They worshiped them. They sacrificed for them. They built great temples, gorgeous altars, high towers, beautiful gardens, obelisks in their honor. Now Asa was determined these false gods were destroying the nation, and he observes that the immorality that accompanies them is destructive. He, be he believed the commandment that said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Does America believe that? It's one of the Ten Commandments which we've torn off the walls of our schools, which we won't allow to be seen in a public place. What's wrong with a rule, a law, a commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not be envious and jealous, thou shalt not steal? Something wrong with that? I think if more people saw that hanging on the wall of schools, and if it was repeated many times, you know, we're losing these traditions. It's not taught in the school. I think the only place you could have heard that today on a Sunday morning is in a church. I pray that this is a place where you can hear that because we're losing it day by day, week by week, month by month. The things that were once considered making us a Christian nation are falling by the wayside and they're being pulled down as statues from a platform. Armed with the strength of the conviction, he passed an executive order. Asa said, all idols, all idolatrous altars, all images must be destroyed. He starts with deposing his grandmother, who herself was an idol worshiper. Can you imagine that, going up to grandma? Forget it, I won't even go there. <laughs> then Asa commanded the people to worship the true and living God. In effect, he became the first evangelist king. A revival breaks out. Lesson three, God can use you to reach others for Christ. Almost all the great movements for, 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 uh, for equality and doing what's right came from the churches. Uh, slavery was overcome because the churches and the pastors were the ones who stood up and said that slavery is wrong. 
that treating people like they are less than human is wrong, that to God, every life is precious. To Jesus, there is no distinction between people. He died to save everybody. He wasn't looking at the color of his skin. He wasn't looking at their politics. He died for all equally. He shed his blood equally. And we know that if we put our faith and trust in him, whoever we are, whatever our background, wherever we are on the social ladder, he's ready to open arms to forgive us. When I see Jesus on the cross or the cross, I just say his arms are wide open to receive everybody. He's the only way. But then think about it. People say, well, there can't be Jesus. Jesus can't be the only way. When I look at the cross, I say, wait a minute. Who's the one that was hanging there? Was it Muhammad? I don't think Muhammad was hanging. There was a star. Was the founder of the Jehovah Witnesses, was he hanging there? No, the only person hanging on the cross for forgiveness of sins was Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why he's the only way, because he is the only way. Charles Spurgeon, Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday, the Wesley brothers, Billy Graham, the list of those whom God has used to speak and live his gospel crosses all generations. God can use you and he can use me to point others to Christ, Acts 1.8. But be ye, be ye, oh boy, but ye shall receive, my teeth get in the way, or my Brooklyn accent, I don't know which it is. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Your Jerusalem, where is that? That is your own home, and that's your circle of acquaintances. It's the people and place closest to you. That's where you can make your biggest impact. Why? Because they see you living it out every day, or they see you not living it out every day. And they believe your words because they see it in action. Samaria, your neighborhood, your workplace, and the uttermost part of the earth, wherever God plants you. Our own online ministry around, allows us to reach every one of these three places. Think about that. From this little building here in this cornfield, we can reach, and we do reach, across the country, and across the world. And as far as I'm concerned, the further we can push that, the better it's going to be because Paul said, whatever it takes, I will do that some may be saved. Well, this is what we can do. and This is what God gave us. And we ought to rejoice in the fact that somebody in California here can hear this message this morning. That somebody down in South America or China or the Philippines can hear this message this morning. With God's help, the idols in our life can be torn down. Lesson number four, God can change the direction of one's life and the life of a nation. Second Chronicles 14, 7, Therefore he, Asa, said unto Judah, Let us build those cities and make about them walls and towers and gates and bars with, with, while, the Lord, while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord our God, we shall have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Asa inherited a polluted civil environment. The particular sins of that nation were what defined them, and it became who they were. And do you know there are certain sins in our country today that are defining the people who are sinning? People say, you say, well, God says that he loves the sinner but hates the sinner. And you know what they'll repeat back to you? 
But my sin is who I am. My lifestyle is who I am. Therefore, when he condemns my lifestyle, what? He's condemning me. That's a lot of nonsense. God loves each and every person and wants to forgive them of their sin. Leadership is either eye-opening or eye-closing, revealing or concealing, permitting or condemning the nation's sin sickness. When our leaders, political and otherwise, do not stand up against the sins of this country, this gives people the idea that they should and can practice those sins. When Judah repented of their sin turned them and turned back to God, they prospered. During that period of revival, they went back to working. They built up cities. Decades of decline, they were heading in the right direction. Lesson number five, it takes courage to change. And what? People hate change. Are that you? We hate change. Don't think, want, think, we don't want things to change, but things are changing whether you want them or not. And we have to change with the times. Not the message. The message doesn't change. But how we present the message does. We must present it in su such a way that it speaks to people where they are right here and right now and how they hear us. Somebody can pick up their, their, their smartphone today and tune in to what's being said in, in this little corner of the, of, the, of the world. They can. Tomorrow, next week, next month. Sin is in the DNA of our flesh. It doesn't go down without a struggle. It doesn't get defeated without submission to the power of God's word in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Sins don't die overnight. Victory over some sin is a process. Victory over the sins, of, of, over other sins won't happen until we go to be with the Lord. You're going to struggle with some sins that you've been struggling with all your life, the rest of your life. But so many others can be defeated. America's first president, George Washington, a Bible-believing Christian, acknowledged, quote, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Who would have thought? How many schools will read that in front of a classroom on Monday? Well, they can't do it Monday. They're closed. But, I mean, how much of that kind of stuff do you hear? There's, there's so much out there in American history that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Alexis de Tocqueville was a famous French statesman, historian, and social philosopher. Beginning in 1831, he and Gustave de Beaumont toured the country of America for the purpose of observing the American people and their institutions. His two-part work, which was published in 1835 and 1840, was entitled Democracy in America. It has been described as the most comprehensive and penetrating analysis of the relationship between character and society in America. This is what he wrote. And you've heard this before, I'm sure. I'm quoting for America's God and Country on page 20. I sought for the key, de Tocqueville writes, I sought for the key of the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, i.e. godly, 
America will cease to be great. Do you believe that? I read it before. It was part of our earlier service, First, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's still a promise. That's a promise that we can take that God will heal our heart first. It begins with you and it begins with me. Revival for to come to America and it has to start someplace. Why not scratch? Why not start the, the revival right here in your own heart? Let's pray. And so this morning, Father, as we realize there are good kings and bad kings, there are good ways and bad ways, there is good and there is evil, help us to realize that we want to be part of the kingdom of good. We want to be part of your spiritual family. If there be any here this morning who has not made a commitment to Jesus Christ to follow him, to believe that he died on a cross to save us from our sins, and forgive our sins, that he was buried in the ground for three days and that he rose from the dead to give us new life. If people will claim Jesus Christ that way and ask him to forgive their sin and come into their heart, they shall be saved. So I pray that those who are here will know you, know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And if not, that they will not be happy, they will not be satisfied, they will not be at peace until they do just that. Bless our time this afternoon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.